Hello and welcome to series three of the Training for Influence podcast. This series is all about the importance of emotional resilience in frontline services, as requested by you, our listeners. In this series, we hope to unearth real stories of both avoiding burnout and rebuilding after it. Our aim is to share positive thoughts and ideas that will inspire, protect and motivate frontline professionals. So welcome, Wendy. It's brilliant to have you here today. Thank you so much for giving up your time for us. No worries, not a problem. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself, Wendy, just as an introduction? Yeah, no, that's fine. So I'm a nurse, a paediatric, midwifery, health visiting. I would consider myself to be a true cardiothoracic nurse. That was my passion. And then the role just evolved, really. But it was frontline nursing that I think got me involved in the holistic assessments of how things work and how things fit together. And as much as I think people see nurses as pink and fluffy, we do an awful lot. And my career from working within a ward to a ward sister to a manager, some of the greatest times have been on practice and involved in roadside recovery, intensive care. It's been a challenge, but yeah. And then I sort of drifted into safeguarding. Wow. I just need to stop for a moment and just recognise actually the power of what you've said, because you've just given us a very whistle-stop tour of your career, but really highlighting the fact that you went into operational practice and then moved through very much into management and strategic impact. And then within that, connected really strongly to safeguarding as well. I think safeguarding, I mean, I trained in London, in a city, Guy's Hospital, and you saw a lot of deprivation really early on in my career. I am a London girl, you can probably tell by my accent grandparents were born and bred in Catford so as I say London we moved out to Essex but I was very much generated and pulled back to London because I grew up in a very small village rural village and I missed the buzz of London so of course going to London you see the extreme of specialised practice such as renal transplants cardiac problems and then you see the general day-to-day and at that time when I was training there was quite a lot of challenging cases that came through the door but you really got to work with experts in their field so it was really really good I failed to say that I'm a mother so I've got two children happily married and I'm currently living in Dorset in beautiful beautiful Dorset yes (laughs) (laughs) fantastic let's um reflect back on that early career a little bit then so you talk about being born and bred in London and how you went back to London to work as well Can you tell us a little bit about what you were doing when you were there, what your role involved? And I guess as well, what was the biggest learning from being on the streets of London as a frontline practitioner? Yeah, well, I remember walking in and I'd been abroad and I had a lovely tan and lovely long blonde hair and quite thin and felt quite happy with life. Six weeks into that, you're virtually on your knees because it was 24-7. But What I do feel privileged about is working at Guy's is you had a really grounded, solid training. And as I say, it gave you access to experts. You still had some very old professors who you had to bow and scrape to. But equally, those professors had lots of experience. So it was during my paediatrics, I first came across some child protection issues, really serious child protection issues. And you start realising nursing isn't all clinical There is a definite social element. In that case, I was working on some fabricated induced illness. And so that started getting me thinking. But it equally makes you think that what we do within health 
a certain element is preventable, especially when you're looking at mental health. So I started forming this picture that I enjoyed what I was doing. I ended up doing ITU and special care, but I always thought bigger. You just see that actually some of the patients, adults and children that come through the door, a lot of it could have been prevented, if you know what I mean. So you start seeing that the social neglect and the way people are living impact on their life outcome chances. So I started thinking that bigger picture, the public health issue. And I guess I've always had quite a curious mind. Does that make sense, Tammy? Yeah, absolutely. It makes brilliant sense. And I have to say, I wanted at three or four different points to ask you further about different things you're explaining. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to go back to just a couple of things. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the difficulties you experienced then and actually how you managed yourself from an emotionally resilient perspective? Yeah, we really had a good set. So we really bonded together. So if something was really challenging, we overcome it together, you know, and you're still in touch with a lot of the people that you trained with. You form a family because you see more of them than you did your own family. But no, the challenges that came in through the door were so varied. You know, we had to do things, as you can imagine, being quite a naive 17 year old starting nursing. You did see some things that you really didn't expect to see because it was a specialised unit. And of course, you saw some very sad cases, which I did see, particularly on the paediatric side, as I say, the fabricated induced illness. It was something I hadn't expected, I guess, when I went into nursing. But you start seeing the child protection side. It was the time when we were having the Vietnamese children come across and I got very attached to one girl. But she had been physically, sexually abused and her brother actually brought her into the hospital and she was with us. I mean, this wouldn't happen now, but she was with us for about nearly a year on the ward until we could actually get her placed and she didn't talk she'd had all her teeth pulled out and horrific abuse and I guess it was getting used to that that you're not just in there fixing people it's about what happens on the outside world for them when they do leave and equally for adults coming in that were homeless or living on the streets so yeah some of that was really challenging but within guys we were the first to do the nursing process So the nursing process was a very early model in relation to a really different way of training. So it was introducing you into reflective practice. So I don't know any different than using reflective practice. And with reflective practice comes supervision, coaching and development. So I've seen that as a natural progression. And I guess through my career, it is the supervision. Now, whether it was clinical supervision So you're actually talking about a clinical situation or you've got the supervision where you're just reflecting on different elements and you're learning from other people's experience. So sometimes we would have reflective supervision in a group and that is something that's just carried through my whole career. So I've been surprised when I hear practitioners supervision was new to them because coaching and development supervision was something that I'd always sort of fallen back to. And always asked and always felt completely non-threatened. It's that stupid question, isn't it? People get anxious. They don't want to say anything. So they carry on doing what they're doing. And that's where mistakes are made. Whereas because I guess my career was quite transparent, if a clinical situation happened, you made a drug error or you made some other sort of error, you know, someone fell out of bed, you would have that root cause analysis to learn why that happened in a non-threatening way. And I think we're at a time now where supervision is really needed because people are working in isolation. 
Would you say there, though, because you talked there about how transparent and open your early career was, and I have to say that's absolutely fantastic and credit to who was managing you at the time and the processes to support you. In your experience, because you deliver a lot of supervision now, don't you? Yes. In your yeah. experience, would you say that the same is happening on the front line? Would you say that the same openness and transparency and support is there? I think in health it is. I think the police are evolving more because I've definitely seen some really good examples of practice. I feel social care and other agencies need to have that same model really embedded because when I do work with social care colleagues, I'm offering them supervision. It's very different to what they're used to. They're used to having their work supervised, not their own being. So, as I say, I think within health, we are very holistic. And that used to be the same within police. It was a very practical model. But they've moved definitely over to a sort of more integrated sort of social sort of support. And it's definitely growing People's concept of being able to talk about what is actually pressuring them is really key. And I think all agencies need that. And you're definitely seeing that grow, I think, across partners. So you mentioned there um, the difference between having your work supervised and supervision. Would you mind telling our listeners what is the difference? Yeah. So if we just take peer reviews, when I'm talking to people in relation to that, what I will hear from social care is that their records are supervised, their cases are supervised, but it's not really them that are getting support. So they're not getting time to sit back and reflect. We're starting to see a really good improvement in relation to that. And it's the same within health. So if there's a clinical incident, you could supervise that. So it's a very practical element of it. But with that practical element has to come the reflective element. So how did you deal with that situation? So if somebody went in and somebody's just died, you know, you could look at the lead up to that, perhaps even clinical intervention, but there should always be that opportunity to actually stand back and say, right now, how has that made you feel? Do you need additional support? Do you need to talk about it and follow up with that person? Because people don't want to talk about things straight away. So if people are dealing with horrific child abuse or child death or even adult abuse and adult neglect, you need time to actually process what's happening And what concerns me at the moment is that people could be processing these cases and perhaps not getting supervision for another six weeks and you're at home and you're in your bedroom. And if it's a case that perhaps is involved sexual abuse, then you are sitting in your bedroom and you are dealing with that. So my supervision with these people that I'm having at the moment is to be able to make sure that they are building in the practice you would have if you were working alongside people and reminding them that what they're doing, they are still people and they need time to process and have headspace. So, for instance, if you were driving back from the office, a lot of people do a lot of thinking in the car or even if they're walking back home. But people being at home and being in lockdown, as I say, sitting in perhaps even in your bedroom or your office at home, you've invited work into your home and you can't share it. We can't necessarily share a lot of what we deal with with our families because it's confidential. So we need time to process that. So supervision offers that. So good quality supervision, a supervisor would be saying, right, how are you dealing with that? What are you doing to actually go away, process that and park it and not let it come into your home and into your life? 
Yeah, and I love the examples that you've given there with regards to the current situation, because we're working in a pandemic and in lockdown at the moment. And it's interesting because like you, I've always worked in connected fields from safeguarding perspective on the front line and then more strategically. And certainly one of the ways that I deal with things is to compartmentalize different things. And actually my home is my safe place and my home is where I can walk in and I can leave. And I would argue that it took me years to be able to do it effectively and learn what works for me. But certainly when I enter my home now, on goes, I guess, my um, metaphorical mum, wife, relax type skin, if that makes sense. And some of the people that I'm talking to and supporting regularly at the moment, particularly in criminal justice sector, are absolutely doing really detailed intervention work from their bedroom. And even from that mindset perspective, it's really difficult. So I'm so pleased to hear that with the people that you're currently supervising, you're really encouraging them to still have that differentiation. Because last time we spoke, I think you told me that you still go on a bit of a routine of going to work and leaving work so that although you're in a pandemic and although you're working from home, there's still a couple of degrees of separation there, isn't there? Definitely. I'll make myself a coffee and I'm fortunate enough to have a garden with a view and a swing. And I will just sit on that swing and think, right, this is my 20 minutes drive home. And I don't necessarily want to talk to anyone because that's another thing you have to share with your family and say, I just need a little bit of time out, you know, to sort of think about what's been happening, put that to bed and know that I can't do any more at that moment in time. You know, if you can't speak to somebody else about a situation because you might have to wait. So if you're an actual practitioner, and you've come off a call and you've let it run on and it's six o'clock at night, you're not going to get anyone else to share that with. I'd like to take a brief interval from talking to our wonderful guest today to tell you a little bit about Tay Training and Training for Influence. Tay Training exists to help you deliver exceptional services, services that have the ability to influence the lives of the most complex and vulnerable. All of our facilitators are operational experts. They tailor the training to your needs. They make it engaging and interactive. And really importantly, it's delivered from a values-led perspective. This is the Training for Influence methodology, which we created to have added influence on the sector. We recognise the importance of building the emotional resilience of frontline professionals, influencing their values, and supporting them to make values-based decisions. So we made this the golden thread of our training methodology. We truly believe that frontline professionals are perfectly positioned to positively influence the most complex of lives. But to be able to do that, we need to help them be the best that they can be. So training for influence is our creative solution. It can be overlaid onto any training course and means that frontline professionals, whether they're attending mandatory or specialist training, will have their emotional resilience built and their values positively influenced. I talk about people putting cases to bed, so it might be a little bit longer to actually put something in an email to someone and say, I need to talk to you this in the morning. I need to find time because people are equally being back to back in Zoom meetings, team meetings and not getting chance to have that coffee or that conversation with people. So I'm really recommending that people time manage so they actually can time manage and time manage a coffee break with some of your colleagues. That works as well because you have to keep up that 
team working and not just sitting there doing meetings, rushing, getting a coffee and then going back into the other meeting because you're not getting time to socialise. And we're human beings. We like to socialise. We like to de-stress, perhaps crack jokes and just talk about our families. People are not sharing good news as well as bad news. Yeah, and it's these relationships that are really key to getting this through because I certainly remember having many of my most useful discussions over a coffee in the coffee room and we're not doing that now, are we? Yeah, so you have to build that into your daily workload because if you know what you're dealing with, you actually have to build that conversation in. And as I say, the ability to actually have a coffee Zoom is vital. I mean, I know I've just done a peer review and we've done them over two weeks, which would normally only take a week And they filled the two weeks with meetings. So we had to go back and say, actually, we're having no time to actually discuss, reflect, get different angles, key lines of inquiry. And they were thinking, but, you know, we can just get you to see everyone. But the process wouldn't have been half as good if we hadn't built in that time for reflection and supervision and discussion. And it's vitally important to everybody, whatever they're working, particularly if they're working on complex cases. And has there been any time within your life that you've struggled or been close to burnout and somebody has helped you through or that you've needed to recognise that your working life needs to change? Yeah, I can honestly say I think that the the higher you get up the ladder, the less people that you have that you can actually be supervised by. I've always ensured that I had supervision. I got it written into all designated roles. Supervision was important. And when we were at the House of Lords, that came up as well. But I've had one go-to person when I started the designated role and doing the nurse consultant role. He's a fellow nurse consultant. We live in different parts of the country, but we would ring each other up. So we have everybody coming to us for help and support and advice. And there will be cases, there was a case of a professional allegation of a paediatrician. And I found that really hard because it was somebody that I really believed in. This person was innocent, can we say? And it was about sounding out. So what I was saying, I needed to triangulate that. So I would run that case past this person and he would ground me and I could go back and do my job. And it was good to know that I was saying the right things. But because I was equally personally involved as well as professionally, it was quite hard to separate that out. So actually having a really good, independent, formal person that you can go to is key. And we will all have those people, won't we? We will always have those go-to people. But because it was a model that we were both very comfortable with, we could talk about professional cases. And again, I think people can find that support in anybody that's working within their field. And when I'm doing training, especially when I was delivering leadership training, that's what I would recommend because it's very lonely when you get to a certain level. You do need other key people that you can just have those really naive conversations with. And just to clarify that you are making the right decisions and right choices. But yeah, that was a particular struggle. Yeah, I can see there from the perspective of the emotional and the professional colliding that's also your personal and your emotional and your professional colliding as well. And I love the fact that you talk about actually taking some personal responsibility and seeking out this support and guidance in peers and colleagues as well. Definitely, it's vital to have a buddy. And I've been privileged to be able to have that relationship for over sort of 23 years. We only met while we were doing a course. But, you know, you just knew that somebody was at the same level that you could work with. And equally, just talking about COVID, 
the most rational person is going to be affected about what we're going through, whether it be our personal life, day-to-day life. There is so many ways that it can affect you and it's going to get to you. It is going to get to you this way of working. As I say, it is something that we're really having to get used to. And I think it's affecting people mentally in a very different way. And I think we have to be open and honest about how we're feeling. So there are times where I'm just really fed up with not being able to go shopping. I get fed up wearing a mask because I get all hot and bothered if you go out. So you don't go out so much and everybody is going to be in the same boat. So supervision has never been more important. But for people to actually acknowledge they're having an off day. You know, I think bosses need to accept that you are not going to get the best out of people if you are being bombarded with Zoom meetings and you're not building in that supervision and support and understanding themselves exactly how people are having to work and what pressures are are currently being placed on them. You make a really good point about, and I rant about this regularly and you said it really nice and eloquently, (laughs) about the fact that our frontline practitioners, they're people too. They have lives and families and struggles, and we're all being impacted by COVID in a variety of ways. And sometimes we can forget that in the desire to deliver exceptional services that change lives. But actually, if we don't look after our frontline professionals and support them effectively, they're not going to be fit and able to do their job. And of course, it's all unseen. You can see somebody on Facebook or whatever, or, you know, on Zoom meetings, but you don't personally know what they're feeling and we don't check in enough with the people. You know, I like to sort of say, oh, hi, how are you? You know, but you don't really get that time to have a deeper conversation. So you don't know what's pressurising them. You don't know if they've got a family member that's ill. You don't know if it's their son that's sulking because he can't go down the pub. You know, and I've had a, a grandchild during lockdown and that's put incredibly pressure on me personally. And it wasn't straightforward, but you have to put on your professional face and carry on working. I'm privileged enough that a lot of people have asked how I've been doing and how she's doing and such like. But you can imagine if you are living on your own and you haven't got anybody and you're working at home and you're not going out, how depressed you could become or isolated. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, huge congratulations. How old is your grandchild now? He's now, he's coming up seven months and he's doing. Oh, my gosh. I know that has gone so quickly, hasn't it? Yeah, Um, it's flown by. So right at the beginning of lockdown. He was born the peak of the pandemic on the 22nd of April, bless him. So she gave birth in full PPE and all the rest of it. Oh, and bless she had her. to stay in hospital for two or four days, but yeah. Oh, well, I'm glad that she's doing well and he's doing well. And also that the frontline professionals that were supporting her did so and did so effectively as well, because oh, that's, yeah. you know, linking background to emotional resilience, you know, it's really important because of the services that they're delivering, because your daughter would have been in her most vulnerable state at that point. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's what we have to think. That's what we don't know what's happening in other people's lives. I mean, my father, who's in a care home, refers to it as prison because he can't go out of the room. So you can equally people that are dealing with relatives in care homes. So it's all the personal stuff that's going to be affecting people on a daily basis. They're all going to know somebody who's had it or somebody who's struggling or not being able to see their relatives. I don't think we're giving enough credit to people that have continued working. And that is all frontline staff through the pandemic that they've maintained that and they're having to maintain their own sanity too. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that really is exactly what these podcasts are about, this series three, 
Because I think even if consciously we feel like we're managing and coping, my experience of burnout or struggling it is very much that it can be quite unconscious. And I know in my life, when I've struggled, it's actually been somebody else that has recognized it and spotted those signs and symptoms and be able to offer me that hand of support, mm. just like your examples that you're giving. And we've just talked about how that's so much more difficult in a virtual world. Yeah. There was one thing you were just mentioning there, Tammy. It's the subtle body language. When you are working with someone, the people that are really struggling, you don't necessarily see the signs and symptoms. And just to give you one live case examples, I was the sister that actually handed over the drug keys to a chap who went and said he'd left his watch in the locked cupboard. So I hand them to him. I'm still working. He comes back, gives me the keys. He's all cheery and happy. Six hours later, he's found to have committed suicide. And that is something that has stayed with me. So if there is anybody out there that feels like they're on their own and things are dark, you must seek and check in with people. You must make sure that you're not becoming too depressed with the current situation, but equally make sure your daily activity, you have nice things planned in, as I say, the coffee breaks, check in with people and check in with your manager and be honest about how you're feeling because 90% of the population is feeling the same. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a real sad statistic that the number of people that have taken their own life during lockdown has increased significantly. So it is really important that we do recognise that and that we do look out not only for ourselves, but for each other as well. Because yeah. you're right, it's not always obvious at all. It's that opportunity to talk. It's that opportunity to have that coffee and be honest and transparent about how you're feeling. Because nobody's going to think ill of you that actually today you're having an off day. And that's why, you know, give yourself permission to actually not join all these meetings because you would not be able to join seven meetings if you had to drive to seven meetings. So it's yeah. about diary planning as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That human connection is so important from that perspective and not booking things back to back so that you don't have time to process it. Thank you so much, Wendy. I've really enjoyed hearing about your early career and the way that you managed on the ground as a frontline worker. And then also hearing about the way that you undertake supervision with people now. And it sounds like anybody who's been supervised by you is extremely fortunate. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> thank you for sharing that. We will make sure that we put in the show notes where you're from, how people can find you and how people can get in contact. But is there anything you would like to say at the end of this podcast to the listeners with regards to kind of looking after themselves and looking after other people? I think first most, you've got to look after yourself before you can care for other people. And you've got to find time to clear your head. Whatever you do, whether that be exercise, going for a walk, give permission to have that time to reflect because it takes one minute to walk out and you've perhaps got to feed the children so even if it's still sitting in your office but listening to music that you like take time for yourself and then you'll be able to care for others and as I say keep checking in keep checking in with other people and take care thanks so much Wendy you're welcome thanks so much for listening to this podcast today we really hope you found it enjoyable and useful Please do click subscribe and then you'll be the first to know when we publish the next episode. And we'd love it if you could share this podcast with a friend or a colleague who might find the tips useful or resonate with the stories. If you'd like to find out any more about us or our wonderful guests, 
All the information can be found in the show notes. We really hope you have a wonderful day. And please remember, be kind to yourself. It makes all the difference.